Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the March episode of the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. This month, we're discussing one of the bread and butter problems in emergency medicine, chest pain. Joining us, we're lucky to have Dr. Karen Rao, a cardiologist who's currently doing his interventional research fellowship at Royal North Shore Hospital. Dr. Nick Moore, an emergency physician and data scientist at Liverpool Hospital. Dr. Hao Tran, cardiology advanced trainee at Liverpool Hospital. And Dr. David Emery, emergency advanced trainee at Westmead Hospital. In our first two papers this month, we're going to be talking about the nuances of two of the key current decision instruments for chest pain risk stratification, the heart score and the EDAX. We're going to chat about low and intermediate risk chest pain, as well as having discussion about the utility of clinical decision aids. In paper three, we're going to look into the future and we're going to discuss the potential role of artificial intelligence in guiding clinical decision-making for chest pain. Before we begin, let's go around the table and introduce everyone. Hi everyone, my name is Pramod. I'm back again for another episode. Hi everyone, my name is Karen. I'm a cardiologist just doing some work over at North Shore in research. Hello everyone, my name is David. Um, I'm one of the advanced trainees at Westmead Emergency. I'm Samoda. It's nice to have you listen to us again. And Hao and Nick will be joining us a little later on. I'm going to be presenting our first paper for this episode. It's called A Methodological Appraisal of the Heart Score and Its Variants, and it's published by Green and Schreiger in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in August 2021. So chest pain is among the most common presentations to the emergency department. And in some ways, you can think of it as the quintessential ED presentation. It's got a high frequency of presentations, it's got a wide differential, and there's a high risk of significant underlying pathology. As the general population has become more aware over the years of the association between chest pain and acute coronary syndromes, we've seen a progressive rise in chest pain presentations. This has included large numbers of worried well who've significantly diluted the prevalence of acute coronary syndromes among patients who are presenting with this problem. This has posed a challenge of risk stratifying the large volumes of chest pain presentations to determine who actually needs admission for the workup and intervention and who might be suitable for discharge and outpatient follow-up. As we're all too painfully aware in our current era of overcrowding epidemics and access block, we don't really have the luxury of admitting everyone to have a stress test. The heart score is one of the many tools that have been developed over the last 15, 20 years to address this problem and has seen fairly widespread implementation, particularly in the States, but also in various emergency departments in Australia. SCORE is a five-part tool. It comprises history, ECG features, age, number of risk factors, and troponin level. And each category is assigned a value between zero and two. So I'll just talk you through the breakdown of the actual tool. So for history, it's graded from slightly suspicious to highly suspicious, again, zero to two. ECG could be normal, have non-specific repolarization disturbance, or have significant SD depression, zero to two. Age is less than 45, 45 to 65, or greater than 65. For risk factors, you get zero for no risk factors, one point for one or two risk factors, and two points for three or more risk factors. And then the last parameter is troponin. So no points for a normal troponin, one point for one to three times the normal limit, and two points for greater than three times the normal limit. 
they categorize the score to zero to three points being low risk, four to six points being an intermediate risk, and seven to 10 points being high risk. Over the years, the heart score has been modified using a few different variations to increase the sensitivity, most commonly the heart pathway, which has attempted to reduce some of the subjectivity and also adds serial troponins at three hours to increase the sensitivity. Now, in this article, the authors question the methodology underlying the development of the heart score, the clinical reliability of using this tool, and also the statistical performance of the tool as a safe stratification method. The paper takes the form of a systematic evaluation of the literature surrounding the heart score and its variants. Now, it's technically more of a critical appraisal than a novel piece of research and kind of slipped through the cracks because that's not normally something we'd cover, but it it does have some useful points. The authors don't specifically state a hypothesis or a PICO question, but essentially their research question boils down to whether the heart score is compliant with the methodological standards prescribed for decision tools by the Annals of Emergency Medicine, and therefore whether they would recommend its use. Ironically, for a paper that critiques the methodology of a decision instrument, the methods of this paper are not very well detailed. The authors used a medical librarian to conduct a literature search of the term heart score. They identified after getting rid of the duplicates, 657 results. After abstract screening, they were left with 139 articles for full text review, and they searched the references to find additional papers. That's basically all we know. They didn't mention how many papers they actually end up using for their evaluation. They didn't mention any systematic method for how they appraised those articles, and ultimately, Other than the referencing that they've used to mount their argument, we don't really have much idea of how they went about their appraisal. The article outlines a number of areas in which the methodology underpinning the heart score is unsatisfactory or non-compliant with the Annals of Emergency Medicine guidelines. So there's a lot in this paper. I'm not going to go through every single point, but I'll go over some of the key details in my opinion, and um, we can have a chat about it. To start with, they argue that the outcome measured by the original derivation, which is the fairly commonly used six-week composite outcome of major adverse cardiac events, is not that relevant to emergency clinicians to whom more immediate outcomes are the main criteria. I must admit, I'm not entirely convinced by this argument. Now, they also mentioned that the heart score is only posited to predict the risk of this outcome and doesn't actually suggest the safety of a specific clinical course. So it doesn't say low risk means they're safe to discharge home. It doesn't say anything about what you should do with intermediate risk. And so it doesn't actually suggest a pathway. They suggested that the score was created around trying to achieve a convenient acronym, similar to APGAR for pediatrics, um, which they referenced a couple of times. And as such, they didn't actually include all of the relevant prediction variables. The variables in the acronym were also not actually chosen by any formal regression analysis method, which is usual standard for clinical decision instruments. Rather, they just sort of collated commonly understood clinical features that suggest acute coronary syndrome. Importantly, they identify that each risk factor in this tool is essentially weighted equally. They only want the sum of the number of risk factors. They're not particularly interested in what the risk factors are. And this is despite the fact that some risk factors such as diabetes are much more predictive than say a family history of cardiac disease. The age cutoffs are similarly quite arbitrary. So someone with a 45-year-old is essentially in the same category as a 64-year-old, despite the fact that you know, it's, they're unlikely to have the same extent of atherosclerosis or other things being equal. Again, looking at the weighting of the score, they say that while 
each element of the score is equally weighted. In one of the papers they covered, the weightings were analyzed through multivariate regression. And they found that some features are slightly overvalued and others are significantly undervalued. So for example, a highly suspicious clinical history or a positive troponin were undervalued compared to the scores that they should be weighted towards. Whereas a background of risk factors was significantly overvalued. There was no actual statistical process for how the weightings were originally assigned. It was more based on convenience of, you know, the simplicity of, of the tool. They validly point out then that the different permutations that lead to a given score, so essentially the different points that lead to a score of four, for example, can have quite widely different risk profiles and therefore are not particularly reliable. The rule is also quite subjective and has been demonstrated to have significant variability between clinicians in how they score, particularly the history element. And quite frequently, this has led to issues of whether a patient can be classified as low or intermediate risk, i.e. a score of three or four, which has tended to hinge on whether the history is judged as suspicious or not particularly suspicious. From a statistical point of view, they suggested that the pooled sensitivities of the heart score, even with the second troponin, um, so the heart pathway, are approximately 96%. And they say that that's not adequate for the goal of a miss rate of less than 2%, which is apparently what emergency clinicians who have been surveyed would ideally like. Now, the original creators of the tool used negative predictive value to claim the adequate miss rate of less than 2%. I think it was one point something, but I don't remember the specific number. Um, but as we know, negative predictive value is highly reliant on the prevalence of a particular problem within the population. And the authors of this analysis argue that because the heart pathway essentially stratifies everyone without any concern for the prior clinician, just all, at least in the papers, the pretest probability would have been relatively low and the prevalence would have been relatively low. And as a result, the negative predictive value would have been misleadingly high. They also say that there's no evidence that the heart score performs better than clinician just all, And this has been shown in a couple of papers. So in summary, essentially the authors of this paper say that the heart score is methodologically unsound, statistically weak, and should not be used. In my opinion, I would say that I'm somewhat inclined to agree, although I don't uh, completely agree with every argument that these authors have made. As with all clinician decision rules, I think emergency doctors, and you know, I'll be interested to hear the cardiology perspective from my colleagues, we have a bit of a mixed relationship with them. Often when they tend to produce an unexpected result, we tend to rely more on our clinical gestalt than on the decision tool. But sometimes they can be useful for helping us to navigate uncertainty and risk stratification. I spent the last three months working in Tweed Emergency Department, in which we do use the heart score to risk stratify patients. And that experience led me to find essentially a lot of the problems that have been highlighted in this paper. I don't really agree that six-week major adverse cardiac events is irrelevant to ED clinicians. For me, you know, and regardless of the presentation, I'm concerned with the interim safety of my patients in terms of making sure that they have an adequate time to reach, you know, the, the next point in their clinical journey and also aren't going to suffer any con negative consequences from, you know, the time taken to reach that step. Six weeks is, at the end of the day, not a very long time. And knowing that a patient is going to be safe for six weeks to me tells me that they're safe for outpatient follow-up.
The subjectivity of the score is pretty concerning. I worry that, you know, a 44-year-old with a highly suspicious story and a bone and rise three times normal is considered low risk. But a 66-year-old with a background of hypertension, cholesterol, and a family history of uh, acute coronary syndrome who has a completely benign history, normal ECG, and normal troponin is considered intermediate risk. So that combined with the subjectivities of the history means that I personally don't really find the heart score useful to integrate into my practice. What does everyone else think? I'll open it up to the floor. Chest pain is like one of those things where it really demonstrates the friction between public health education versus what the ED presentation priorities are. You want to make sure the public understands what acute coronary syndrome is. You want to make sure that they understand what concerning chest pain sounds like. And then you rely on the public's interpretation of that information to then initiate emergency department presentations, right? That's sort of what the public health campaign side of things is, amongst other aspects of public health management of acute coronary syndrome, including smoking cessation, diet, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously, when it comes to the actual ED presentations, you're right. A lot of our presentations are diluted by overly concerned patients. Now we can't preoccupy ourselves too much with that because that's kind of what we want. We want not to have people sitting at home thinking that the ED is too busy to come to. Look, in terms of the heart score and my overall use of clinical decision tools, I don't really use them that much. I don't really find the heart score very useful. I think it's an interesting and handy education tool in order for junior staff to better understand maybe how to contextualize chest pain and what are some red flag features that are useful to actively seek out when you're evaluating a patient with chest pain, especially for the more junior staff who may not have the clinical experience to be able to form Gestalt. I cannot recall a clinical instance where my decision-making was based solely off the heart score. And I think when comments are made about the score being redundant, I think you're misinterpreting where the score fits in in your clinical evaluation. No clinical tool should be used in isolation. Right. So like when they raise concerns about the fact that the 40 year old male with no risk factors and troponin three times normal and maybe some typical or even atypical features on history, like no one in their right mind is going to ignore that. Right. Like if you bring it down to a pragmatic level, no one is going to say, well, I mean, the heart score is low, so we can send this patient home. No one's going to do that. And so I think some, some of those objections, whilst theoretically sound uh, in terms of the methodology of how the score was created, they don't really hold any value pragmatically. Like no one's using the score in that way. I think the score is used mostly in that way at triage, right? Like that's what determines how you stream chest pains for the most part, at least in at Westmead. Like if you have a diabetic, hypertensive, previous ischemic heart disease, 70-year-old with typical sounding chest pain. That's a cat two that's going to acute, right? And if you have a 33-year-old with iffy sounding chest pain who has no real risk factors, that's a cat two, but that's being streamed to front of house. From a pragmatic point of view, that's where I see the hard score fitting into clinical practice. I've never really used it to facilitate discussions with cardiologists. I've never used it to facilitate discharge planning. You're right. This score is very narrow. And so my, I cast a net that's a lot wider than that. And mind you, it doesn't even take into consideration the differentials you're considering in all these patients who are, for the most part, undifferentiated. I've never had a cardio AT ask me specifically what's the hard score. So I think it is definitely a domain of the emergency physician, but I'm curious to know what your thoughts are. It's very interesting because so many times I've answered the phone and from ED, I've been told, you know, a heart score or an EDAC score. And I must admit, up until now, reading through these papers, I hadn't paid much thought to it. I kind of just don't really pay much attention to it because... It's funny, going through the heart score, obviously we've spoken about its shortcomings. The actual score is made up of exactly the same things that a clinician would use. It's just that instead of having a binary or a, you know, a zero, one, two score allocated to it, 
you use clinical acumen, you, you weight different factors in the right clinical context, and you come up with a decision. My major issues are probably in line with Treyas. I think the variables are obviously super convenient. They're there for the acronym. They're not evidence-based and they're super subjective. I think the paper itself mentions so many times results fall in between a three and a four, which makes someone low risk and then suddenly intermediate risk. I think scoring systems do have a role in clinical practice. And, and as Pramod said, the younger generation or some people that are not as experienced or are still developing their clinical acumen, they can use it to supplement their practice. And particularly in chest pain, I think in intermediate risk or in low to intermediate risk where you're not sure where to place them. It does potentially have a role to supplement. I mean, I'm not sure about the heart score on its own. I think there's some other better scoring systems and we may even talk about them a bit later. One thing is even the ECG. So I think the paper mentions this as well, and it's a very good point. So the ECG, you get one point for non-specific repolarization disturbance. I mean, repolarization usually refers to the T wave, so they're not very specific yet. I mean, what does that really mean? And, and how is that an ischemic ECG? And then significant ST depression. I mean, if you have a patient with chest pain and significant ST depression, does the rest of the score really matter? Probably not. They're some of my issues. The, the other thing I, I thought about mentioning was I found it interesting that the authors say that, well, I think it's a 2% fail rate or 98% sensitivity rate for a scoring system. I mean, I don't know how easy that is to achieve. I mean, that sounds great. I mean, to have a 98% sensitive score, but in today's day and age, you're seeing all these patients coming in, say 35-year-old with an Indian background or 50-year-old with no risk factors. There's so many genetic predictors which we don't quite know about. And having a score at 98% sensitivity seems impossible because there's so many patients coming through the door that no one in their right mind could have predicted are going to have a heart problem or are going to have coronary disease or whichever. So I think from, I mean, to answer your question directly, from cardiology point of view, we don't really usually classically pay too much attention to these scoring systems. I guess in ED, it's very different. You've got to make a decision straight away. Someone walks through the door and you've got to work out, hey, can, can I admit them or can I discharge them? And at Westmead, we're lucky to have, say, a rapid access service, which also plays into it in terms of how much, you know, you say six weeks, is that too long or too short? But if you have a rapid access service, then suddenly your timeframes are very different to a service, say, in maybe Tweeds or maybe somewhere rural, where if you can't get access to a cardiologist for a lot longer time, then maybe the scoring system needs to reflect that. So they're just my little thoughts on, on the paper. I think it's a great paper, and I, I kind of agree with the authors here. As trainees, have you found a heart score a useful stepladder to better understanding the evaluation of acute undifferentiated chest pain? I think you made a couple of good points there, Pramod. For junior trainees, this score is really just considering ACS. It can be a bit of a misguided clinical evaluation if you're just following, say, the heart score to look at someone with chest pain. It's interesting because it's a very sensitive tool. If you look at the numbers they came up with, it'll pick up 96 to 97% of people who are going to have an adverse cardiac event in the next month to six weeks. I think there is that role for it to sit alongside clinical judgment and to supplement it. I mean, the other interesting point was they went to quite a length to say repeatedly in the paper that it's never been shown to produce better outcomes than clinical judgment alone. So there's that to take into consideration. And I think the other thing, particularly if we're talking about junior medical staff using it, is it may be useful, sure, to, to pick up some of the red flag, but it can produce that falsely low risk in someone who you may have, or an experienced clinician may have significant concerns about. So that would be my sort of reservation. Again, as Karen said, all the, the features of the score are things that we're looking at for every patient that has chest pain anyway. So it's not something I routinely calculate, but I can see it can, it can sit there alongside clinical judgment. When you do research, for example, and you are analysing 
outcome-based questions. Do scores like this help you in that context as well to better interpret what our current performance rates are and, you know, what risk factors maybe signal potentially worse outcomes and breakdown of heart scores and, and that sort of stuff? Is that, is that how you would approach using this in a research context? I think that's a really good question. Most scoring systems in any specialty, like you said, originate from this research background. This is why I don't think the heart score has originated purely in that way. I think most of the time you do quite a heavy statistical analysis because what you want is you want bang for your buck. You want parts of your score which all have very high predictive value essentially for the outcome that you're looking for. The heart score kind of is just too convenient for that. It seems like it's a score that was made just because it rolls off the tongue. It has fundamental parts to it, which are important to a chest pain presentation. But no, I, I don't think that this heart score was created in a purely research way. I think the creators of the heart score thought that it was a very easy to remember, easy to calculate score and could be used as a clinical adjunct. But it's very interesting you say that. That's right. Most of the scores that we see everywhere have just originated from that research background. And then that's how you validate it on, on large populations and you get results that can help you prospectively then validate it, which yeah, I don't think has been done really well for the heart score. I think the authors of this paper were sort of at pains to sort of repeatedly state that sort of flawed process. Even in terms of the numbers from the original derivation study, there was no power calculation, which to me was astounding. Like the underlying initial research methodology was extremely weak. And when you compare it to some of the sort of development processes for other commonly used tools, things like the PERC score or Chalice score for pediatric head injury, they tend to have gone through substantially more rigorous statistical process. Karen, your comments earlier about the ECG and the troponin, they certainly raised another methodological flaw or at least a bias in the heart score. I mean, a highly suspicious ECG for ischemia or a elevated troponin, you know, presuming that the patient doesn't have renal failure or something like that, are diagnostic for acute coronary syndrome. And yet they're being incorporated into a tool to predict the same thing that they're diagnostic for. So there's quite a substantial incorporation bias here, and that probably is going to significantly increase the sensitivity falsely compared to the true value of the tool, which is really looking at the patient's who maybe are a bit marginal and in who were uncertain whether is it an unstable angina, is it an anginal process, is it something completely unrelated. The other issue is that in their original derivation, they basically included all comers. Anyone who had chest pain who didn't have a stemony was included. One of the key issues raised by this paper is what do we actually do with people who are classified as low risk by the heart score? From my personal practice, I certainly don't think that every single person who presents to the ED with chest pain needs a heart score and two negative troponins. When the 22-year-old comes in saying that their chest hurts, if their ECG is normal, then I'm often not doing any bloods at all unless I have a concern for something else. I was fascinated in the pediatric realm to find out when I was at the children's hospital that most of the clinicians that didn't even know how to use troponins because they didn't measure them at all. And chest pain in pediatrics in the absence of pneumonia was basically seen as a benign presentation. How much investigation do you guys do for a relatively low-risk chest pain patient? If I break that up by age, I think if it's under 30, I might consider not doing any investigations beyond an ECG and actively seeking alternative differentials, chest X-ray, and hemothorax. 
if they're between 30 and 40 and my risk stratification is low and I'll probably if we'll end up doing a troponin then like a timed one depending on when their symptoms occurred in the absence of any risk factors and then once they get more risk factors then it really is just slightly more nuanced than what I can easily communicate in like a sentence it just really just depends on what the patient's clinical presentation is I think where I struggle as well is those intermediate risk ones I'm blessed at Westmead to have a rapid access clinic but I also work at Nepean and those services are not so easily accessible there. And, and so there are more uh, factors in the decision-making process beyond simply just what the patient presents with. You know, if they live on a farm that's an hour and a half away from the hospital, I might end up sticking them in short stay and then seeing if I can get them straight to a cardiologist's rooms at Nepean the next day, which I've done before. I speak to the cardio boss and they'll say, I'd get an appointment in my rooms the next day at 10, saves the patient a two-hour round trip. So there's the decisions there that change my management plan that are not purely based on my risk assessment of acute coronary syndrome. I'm with you, Shreya. If they're young, and by young, I mean under 30, and if they've got no cardiac risk factors and their ECG is normal and their pain sounds atypical, I'd cease my investigations for acute coronary syndrome and I'd pursue other differentials more actively. When does a low-risk patient actually need to be followed up? So if you're either you know in the rapid access clinic or otherwise just in your rooms, how interested are you in seeing these patients? And I guess there's obviously a spectrum. I guess the 22-year-old who comes in with chest pain is fairly easy. What about the 40-year-old who doesn't have risk factors yet? I mean, look, I, to be honest, hearing you guys speak about it, chest pain is getting harder and harder to to investigate and, and initially sort of differentiate, to be completely honest. I, I was hearing sort of the ages you guys were talking about, and I, I completely agree. I think, you know, 30 or 35, maybe 10 years ago, 40 was the cutoff. Now we're thinking maybe 30. And who knows what happens in the next five years. It's crazy. Just in my advanced training alone, over three years, uh, this is obviously not validated and, and this is not stats-based, but just anecdotally, it, it seems like the age is getting younger and younger and younger and younger. So in first year, you know, maybe I saw a few patients in their 30s. Then in second year, then I saw a lot more. I saw some 20s come through. And then in my final year, the numbers again are, are rising for how many younger patients we're, we're seeing. It's a nightmare to try and differentiate this. I mean, you can't admit everyone. You do need to have some sort of a cutoff and you are going to miss people. I think that's scary in a way but it's a public health and pragmatic approach to dealing with chest pain. In terms of who I want to see, I guess that sort of leads me to that answer. And that is essentially, uh, I think over the age of 30, you can't really ignore anyone now. And yes, the younger patients tend to be quite straightforward. And the type of investigations that I might choose up front are going to be based on their risk profile in my head. And say under 30, I'd be pretty, I guess, you know, if I'm seeing someone who's under 30, I'd be putting them low risk even with maybe a risk factor or two. But anyone under the age of 40, even I'm counting, and under the age of 30, you're starting to reevaluate as, do I need to rule it out at least with some investigation? So it's a, it's a bit of a dynamic and, and scary world now, but that would be my views on it. Thank you. That's really valuable. I had the experience recently of working in Tweed Heads, as I've mentioned, and although it was actually you know quite an urban area and you know, adjacent to one of the largest hospital centers in Australia, in the Gold Coast Hospital. It was very interesting for me to work in a setting that had such limited cardiology cover, which was the case at Tweed. Promos already alluded to some of the challenges with accessing services when you're at sites that don't have as streamlined processes as, you know, a tertiary center such as Westmead. What have your experiences been in terms of sort of trying to arrange follow-up for patients, particularly outside of Sydney? What sort of pathways have you used? Has it been a little bit of trying to have a collegiate conversation with the cardiologist to, you know, navigate the situation? How have you guys dealt with this problem? I think these clinical scores are less and less useful the further and further you are away from easily accessible outpatient services. 
because the outpatient services buffer your risk assessment, right? You might even accept a higher miss rate if you know that everyone you discharge from the ED is going to be followed up in a week, which is often what happens in metropolitan Sydney. There's plenty of rapid access centres, even privately, that function. So patient accessibility is uh, a different, a whole other thing. It changes your risk assessment entirely. And when you're dealing with delayed follow-up and potential truncation of subacute illnesses, then yeah, it will change your risk assessment. It's, I guess the most classical example is paediatrics, right? Like you would admit a kid overnight if you were working in a regional centre who had presented with croup, for example, and you might discharge them home if you were working at the kids' hospital when they lived down the road. And so I'd use a similar rule of thumb. I was struck by the difference between small metro hospitals in the city with limited cardiology cover versus even still, a, you know, a relatively metropolitan hospital in Tweed Heads, but, you know, slightly further out. I haven't worked significantly more regionally than that, but was considering in my mind the challenges of, say, if you lived in a much smaller area. I've worked in Auburn in the past. In Auburn, although it's a small hospital, we have the luxury that basically anyone who we want followed up, we have cardiologists who will be proactive enough to ensure that they get followed up in their rooms within a week or two. In Tweed Heads, unfortunately, there isn't the same access to resources and the clinicians do quite a good job, I think, of navigating that challenge and being aware of the tools that they have at hand. Unfortunately, private insurance tends to come into it quite a bit. So patients who have private insurance can have expedited transfer to the private hospital, have their stress echo or their CTCA and be immediately further risk stratified. But often the most vulnerable patients who aren't privately insured end up waiting a couple of weeks for a cardiology appointment then have to have their outpatient investigations. And then even when the investigations were positive, are then placed on public waiting lists and have to wait weeks and weeks and weeks to have their diagnostic angiogram, often in settings where they're experiencing ongoing pain. So it can be quite alarming in some smaller centers to see the different risk thresholds that are accepted to what is accepted in a large tertiary area. I think it really speaks to some of the issues that have been raised in the recent reviews into regional healthcare by the government. give you my take-home points for this paper. I guess take-home number one, and really, if I really only had one, then it would be this. Be careful about using clinical decision tools. Do not replace your clinical judgment. Experienced clinician judgment is at least as good as the heart score in identifying serious causes of chest pain. And not every patient who presents to the emergency department with chest pain needs to have a heart score or an equivalent tool and two serial troponins. Use your judgment and do what's best for the patient. So that's it for part one. Thanks so much to everyone for joining us and stay tuned for part two, where we cover the EDAX tool and talk about intermediate risk chest pain. As always, please email any comments, questions, or feedback to Club at gmail.com. Now we're giving it a try I like the way you describe it To people who won't go